Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Views on View, the podcast where we have a view on Vue.js. <laughs> Good, I know. Thank you. Uh, I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for miming, but I'm still your host. And today with me back for yet another visit is Mr. Eric Hanshed. How you doing, Eric? Hey, hey, how's it going, Steve? Good to be back. Good to talk Good. about you. Yes. Good to have you back. Good to have you back. Uh, Eric and I were just chatting beforehand and noticed that in his videos, he still has a reference to his Vue.js in action book, which is a few years old and mostly on YouTube. But if you still want to go buy it, you still can <laughs> in his, in his uh, uh, YouTube videos. Yeah, but, I, I have a list of links to just a bunch of different resources in my YouTube videos. And one of them happened to be uh, my Vue.js in action book, which is uh, a few years old now, but I'm proud of it. It it, it did really well. Um, helped a lot of people out. So, so now, you're if, in, now you're independently wealthy because of it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's you know, <laughs> I'm just actually uh, not sure for the listeners out there, but I'm on my yacht right now. Um, okay, now I was just lying. I'm, I'm I don't have that. I, I'm yes. in my office right now. We all know that writing technical books is a very lucrative pastime. So <laughs> it is. It it is. It's it's a labor of love. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've I've, been I've been thinking about another version of it, like a a, a revision two of the Vue.js in action book, uh, because of all the positivity of writing it the first time. But I just don't know if I I don't know if I have the time. I'll I'll, I'll put this out there. If anybody's listening right now and wants another uh, another Vue.js in action version two with more Vue three stuff in, tweet me at Eric Ch. And uh, who knows? I'm actually might even be up for having someone be who's a really good writer that could co-author it. Who knows? Yeah, I've worked on a couple of books. I worked on a couple of Drupal books with a buddy of mine who was writing books. And and that was just the technical editor, you know, just double checking stuff. And man, that took a lot of time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Time. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, I don't think. And then, you know, when I made uh, when I made the videos for View Mastery, uh, I worked with Adam Jar and, and that crew. Even just writing the scripts for the videos, Took forever and i didn't even do the screencasting they had somebody else do it for me you know we talked about that in an episode with adam jar and that took a lot of time i'm like okay <laughs> i'll do it once in a while but not a regular thing for sure yeah i'm, I'm so impressed by the view mastery the view school people like just the quality content they put out and, and it's a lot of work putting those videos out my youtube channel i'm like literally an hour or two before i'm like that's an interesting topic you know i'll, I'll put this together and i'm like done in a few hours but those guys like they got scripts they got whole editing teams yeah it's pretty impressive yeah in that episode with adam we went into all the details about who does what and all the people involved i mean like the guy that uh and i'm already forgetting his name i have to look it up but the guy who did all of the scripting and the recording for me and he was sort of like my director and you know video guy he was awesome uh, definitely made the videos a lot better than they could have been. And the best thing with, I uh, probably the best thing about all the view mastery videos was that they let me incorporate my dad jokes at the end of each one. So you don't get them on YouTube. You got to pay for them on view mastery. But uh, <laughs> the best part is the dad jokes at the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's good or bad, depending on your point of view. Anyway, moving on to our topics for the day. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with, with Eric, uh, he now works at AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, and is a developer relations guy, DevRel, I guess. Or I'm not sure what you're, ex- developer advocate. Yeah, uh, yeah, developer advocate. Mm-hmm. At AWS, having initially been hired to do some view development. Uh, fortunately for Eric, he survived the layoffs at AWS, <laughs> been going around. So that's a relief for sure. I've been the victim of third round of layoffs before in my own history. So I know know how it feels. It, uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, we're going to talk about uh, a new tool he's created for AWS uh, using Vue.js. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in a previous podcast episode. So I, I've been doing, as part of the, my developer advocacy work, I've, I'm new to developer advocacy. I've been doing front-end and development and back-end development for my whole career. But part of being a DA, I've been submitting talks to a lot of different conferences. And uh, a couple of the talks I've done, um, one is on 
creating open source libraries and tools. So for the last two years, I've been working on an open source team at AWS that works on the Amplify UI components library. And one of the first things we did when we started was uh, we had a really old version of this library that was written in Stencil, uh, Stencil JS. So it was using web components, uh, which was fine. But we we decided that uh, we wanted to rewrite it in kind of like the native platforms, the native native libraries out there, instead of using web components. And so we embarked on this journey for about two years to rewrite the view library uh, for Amplify to use uh, to use it in, in in view three. So instead of using an older view two version, uh, we wanted this Amplify and it was a UI library uh, to be written in in for view three. And so that was my job for the first a good year and a half. Um, probably closer to two years of maintaining and setting up that library. So I created a whole talk on this, on writing, on creating my first open source library. And and I thought it'd be interesting. I could talk about some of the things that I learned in that process and, and some of the things that worked well and some things that didn't work well. So we can, we can jump into that. Uh, how's that sound, Steve? Sounds good to me. You're the expert on it, so I'll let you lead the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th definitely, this this is a, a talk uh, I'll be giving again here soon. But I think the point of it is is like when you start creating an open source library, you really have to define some of the requirements. So like at the well, one of the one of the thing one of the important things you need to do. So at the beginning of the process, we needed to create what basically is an authenticator, uh, and and so we have a, a backend Cognito authentication authorization system. It does an identity management. And we wanted to make, we wanted to create a component that anybody could just drag and drop into their view app to add in this functionality to be able to log in or sign in, sign out, do federated login, to handle forgot your password, to handle uh, multi-factor authentication. So we wanted a component kind of does all this together and with minimal amount of boilerplate to add to an application. So as I started this project, Vue 3 was uh, coming into its own. Still definitely was early days in Vue 3. And so we had to make some decisions like, do we use, what kind of build system we use? So we had a lot of talk about using Vue CLI or Vite. Um, and when I say we, it's mostly me, but <laughs> the royal we. <laughs> um, then should we use JavaScript or TypeScript? And I think pretty obvious today that TypeScript's the way to go through most new projects. Not always, but most of the time, I, I believe. But back then, you know, we had some questions because Vue 2 was uh, famously known for not being very good at TypeScript back in the day. Uh, there was really good TypeScript libraries you can add, and Vue 3 was coming out, and Vue 3 had uh, much better TypeScript support. And then the Composition API or Options API, this was first when everybody was really nervous about the Composition API. Do you remember those days, Steve? Uh, well, what I remember is the, and I've talked about this before in here, is when the initial announcement came out about the whole restructure, the blowback was just like fierce. I think you got a lot of blowback from one of your videos, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And I think the concern was backwards compa compatibility with Vue 2, if I remember correctly, you know, and forcing everybody to completely redo all their code if they went to Vue 3 and, and they came back and said, okay, whoa, uh, we're, we're not going to destroy backwards compatibility with the options API. But uh, that's my that's my recollection of when Vue 3 first came out. Yeah, exactly. And that we went through that. I mean, there was a whole lot of blow. People were nervous about this. They were, and and rightfully so. And, and so we had to make that decision too as we were creating this new libraries, like what paradigm, what what things do we do? This is an open source library. We want to make sure that as things continue on, developers are able to jump into the code base and and use it in the proper ways. And then uh, Pinya, uh, we were thinking about state management systems. Like Pinya is obviously pretty popular, but we're thinking about X state. Like, and there's some things that I want to talk about that. And then we looked at Beautify and Beautify 3, and I know we, we've had uh, John Leader on, on the show. Mm -hmm. And he actually used JSX for his open source library. So we considered that too. It's like, maybe we don't even use templates. Maybe we should just use JSX because JSX, you know, we have a lot of React developers. 
So we kind of had to had to think of a lot of these decisions at the beginning and what was the best uh, for us. Um, and then we kind of thought of those decisions that I'll tell you guys what we decided on. But we also had a set of requirements um, with our open source library, like accessibility. Uh, I think it's like table stakes for all, I think most libraries out there, like how accessible uh, are you? Are you WCAG compliant? And that was something we, we strove for being uh, 2.1 AA WCAG compliant. And WCAG and, uh, is? It's uh, WCAG stands for, uh, it's it's the web accessibility. It's basically it's a it's a okay. test of web accessibility. Okay. I think it's web 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 content accessibility guidelines. So mm -hmm. there, the w3.org lists out a set of guidelines for accessibility, and 2.1 is one of like those guidelines, and you can find it like at w3.org. And it has, it's very dense document, but it gives you like a lot of information. And then there's tools that you can use to like test against that accessibility standard. Mm -hmm. um, I think we used one, I can't remember what we used. There's, there's a handful of different tools, but anyways. Then uh, bundle size was like a really important consideration. So we, we looked at, at uh, like, one thing I hate as a developer is when I bring in a package into my project and then all of a sudden it doubles the size of it when it builds. I'm like, what's the problem here? So we had to make <laughs> sure the consideration of like, how do we keep that low? Um, then we think about like how, how you build packages in modern days. Like back then people were still using node built-ins in their packages. And now it's pretty common that it's, you know, everybody uses ZSM. So to make sure that we have, you know, web components. We use Vite for our builder and bundler. Um, and it uses Rollup in the back end, the background to do it all. So we made sure we, we either had that consideration. Plus, uh, as we were creating this Vue 3 open source uh, UI component, we were also simultaneously creating a Angular and a React version. And so we wanted to make sure we were using our best practices and we were reusing code between all three. So we decided to use a monorepo was uh, one way to, to handle that. And also we used uh, XState. Mm. So uh, this is kind of interesting. So XState's like, uh, like a, a state management tools that use finite state machines. So you know exactly, like it, it's, if you ever use state, state machines like in your computer science programs, this might be familiar with you. Probably many people listening right now isn't, but it's kind of a particular way of handling data where if there's a one... A unique way that that data flows through your application, and we really kind of latched on to that, especially since it had great package support, and we could create one state machine that we could share between our React, Vue, and Angular, and later our uh, other implementations. So any of our JavaScript libraries, we can have this one state machine and then share it between all three, and that way we had kind of similar uh, state and outcomes for all three, and it made it um, made it easier that that we had um, basically every single, between the different libraries were all very similar when, when we were done. Have you ever used XState? We actually, I'm, I'm here looking real quick, but I talked to somebody about XState on either JavaScript, Java, or here. And I remember we had a really great, uh, pretty in-depth talk about it. So my understanding from it, um, probably David K. Piano. No, it was a gal. I don't know if it was Maya Shavin okay. um, or who it was that we talked to. I'll have to find it and put it in the notes. But it was a good thing, good talk. And what I remember about state machines versus Vuex state management is that state machines had more to do strictly with, how do you say, the condition or the state of your app as compared to storing data in it. Right. So for a single page app, you would use Vuex or Pinya, whatever the case may be, to maybe grab data from your front end and put it in state so that it could be accessible by multiple components in a reactive way. Where state machine was more like, okay, I'm in this state. Now I'm going to change and go to this state, you know, whatever those things are in your app. So it's more narrowly focused and defined than a Vuex or a um, tool that's yeah defined that's as state management yeah no that's that's a, that's a really good good way to put it so yeah you're going from like one state 
to another state. So like if you log in, like if you're at the login page, that's one state. And then you click the login button, you're in another state. And then when you're authenticated, you're in another state. And then you can have data that's shared between all between those that you can share as well. Um, but no, that's that's a perfect way to do it. And so we wanted to make sure our authenticator had each state, a certain state for each one of them that we could share that between all different implementations. So it's definitely a different way to think about it. Um, and then we looked at like uh, like Vue 3 best, best, best practices, like composition API with script setup. Uh, we ended up using uh, single file components with templates. We did not use the JSX, like I mentioned earlier. Good for we, you. We, we used uh, TypeScript. <laughs> I know, I'm in a Vue podcast and I'm talking about JSX. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, my experiences with it hasn't always been positive. Maybe that's just because I'm not familiar with it, but it makes me nervous when I think about having to write in that. The only time I ever did it was when I was, I created a couple of videos on my YouTube channel um, on Eric.video, which I was just playing around with JSX. And it's definitely different than, it. there was some nuances and differences between it and using like a React app using JSX. So mm -hmm. Uh, and it takes time to get used to differences of doing things and using, instead of using your your nice directives like VF and V4, and now you have to do maps and, and ternary operators. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did. We turned like as we were going through this process, we decided to, like turn on TypeScript. We turned that on. Um, we turned strict mode on. Uh, we actually had we at one point we had any like you couldn't do any anywhere. Uh, for those of you who know that any is a way to kind of opt out of TypeScript. But we ended up having it on. Um, so there is definitely, even to this day, there's still some things that aren't typed. And then we used like some linting, ES3, Vue 3 Essentials, um, use slots, things like that. Oh, uh, so. I, I found my episode. It was Maya Shivin that we talked to, Vue 147 from. Yeah, it's been almost ooh, almost exactly uh, two years ago. Talk nice. about X state. So as we went through this process, uh, it, it was it was pretty fun, just jumping in, writing view code all day. Uh, we did a lot of testing. We set up Cypress end-to-end -end testing throughout the application, which we went back and forth. I think if we had to do it again, we would have focused more on on uh, view. Uh, testing a uh, unit testing with Jest or using the V test, but we decided Why? like, well, because we found that it, it, one of the advantages of end-to-end -end testing is it's like you're basically as if you're the user and you're clicking around and and it's very like black box testing in that point, um, and it's very thorough and it's one of the best ways you can test. But the, one of the disadvantages of it is it's gets a little slow. <laughs> and so it's it's a little bit slower overall than our test suite after adding in dozens and dozens of tests. Uh, it was taking quite a bit of time to run through all of them. Mm -hmm. And then I think the, the sweet spot is to have um, test coverage. I used to not be in favor of test coverage tools and, and having like an 80% unit test coverage because you, you're in some organizations, people can manipulate that or write, you're writing tests for the sake of tests just to pass some test coverage tool. Um, but I found that having a great team of other front-end developers and just having a very high operational excellence bar that you end up writing pretty good tests that get code reviewed by very smart people and and you can't get away with writing, obviously, bad tests. And so as we've seen with, with, uh, with other different, with our React code base and everything, I think, having like a combination of more uh, unit tests and then have, you know, a separate amount of integration tests, I think would have been better. We've really over-focused, I think, on end-to-end -end tests. And that's changed a little bit recently, but uh, at the beginning, it was definitely more end-to-end -end test focused. Yeah, we do, you know, in our my day-to-day, -day, we do a combination, since it's Laravel and Vue, we do a combination of PHP unit uh, and then uh, Dusk, which is end to end. It's you know it's basically like Cypress uh, testing, and we tend to focus probably more on the end to end testing, just because you know we catch we catch a lot of stuff uh, with those with those tests for sure. And it takes a while. I think anytime we had to 
fix some things in our circle CI configs, but we're looking about, I think it's around 15 minutes uh, to run our test suite. I'm not sure where that compares to other people, but there's a ton of tests. Um, That's good. But, but yeah, it, it, it takes a while to run to run those tests. So side note real quick, have you seen Playwright? I have heard of it, yeah. So I interviewed Debbie O'Brien about that here uh, a couple months ago, two, three months ago. She's like uh, the big DevRel for Playwright. And it looks really slick. I haven't had a chance to try it yet. It's it's basically a Cypress competitor, I think. Um, and I know I've talked to the guy from Cypress probably three, four years ago on JavaScript Jabber about Cypress and how it works. They're both really pretty slick front-end testing uh, libraries for sure. So there's multiple options out there for doing the front-end testing. Yeah, yeah. I took a, last year at ViewConf US, I took Jessica Sachs' uh, Cypress course, uh, uh -huh. her, her workshop, and uh -huh. it was great. I learned, she deep-dived into it. I think she's at Ionic now. She's works in Stencil. It's JS, speaking of Stencil. That sounds familiar. What's her name again? I'm sorry. Uh, Jessica Sachs. Okay. S-A-C-H-S. But she, yeah. she ran a workshop last year at ViewConf, and I think she's running another one this year, too. So anybody's listening who's going to ViewConf, you might want to check that out. Uh, yeah, testing is very interesting. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on on testing. Yeah, I have sure. some opinions. They've been changing recently based mm -hmm. on it. We, we, we did. One nice thing is I, I don't think many open source projects do this. We created a full uh, Canary suite. So we run through all our packages every 15 minutes. We test them out, like on Invite, View CLI, uh, even our 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 React and Angular. Same. We kind of build them with the latest version that we've published, and then we also run some end-to-end -end tests against them to make sure that nothing broke. And then we have like a canary that that does that, and we're all using uh, GitHub Actions to do it. We also use Cypress Cucumber, which is a way to kind of do behavior-driven development. It's almost like you write your tests in like human-readable language, like scenario, sign in with unknown credentials. When I type this, do this. When and I type this, then I see this, and this you can translate it to like your Cypress definitions that you have. So yeah, we, we did a lot of work on testing on this library. Um, I kind of fast forward a little bit to like what went well. I mean, kind of looking back on this, we uh, the parity between like the Vue, React, and Angular versions of our authenticator was really uh, well done. Like they were exactly the same. The uh, the testing, our end end testing, ended up catching a lot of issues during our development lifecycle. So we. Or, you know, even though we were mostly doing end-to-end uh, -end tests and, and few unit tests that still caught, like, majority of the issues. And we got a really lot of positive customer feedback with, with what we did. And But some things I think, like, looking back on creating an open source library I would have done better for this project is we probably should have had high, higher ESLint levels just to catch more issues. I think as you go on with projects, just being very diligent to look at your ESLinting and can you kind of put it to the highest level? And, and Vue has like a Vue 3 recommended, but they have like higher levels. And you can add in your own ESLint rules. And I think we could have done a better job there. Uh, we The library only supports Vue 3. This was really before there was like, there's Vue Demi, Vue Demi, uh, and a few others that allow you to create open source Vue libraries that work with Vue 3 and Vue 2. But at the time, those didn't really exist. So we went all in on Vue 3. Uh, I think most of the community has transitioned to Vue 3 or at least Vue 2.7 at this point, which is fine. But you can still use our older library with Vue 2. But just with Vue 3, you have to... Vue 3 is... We created a new one just for Vue 3. And then uh, there are lots of slots within slots. So we kind of took the approach of allowing you to override a lot of different places. And it kind of made the code complicated with these nested slots. And looking back, I think that could have been done better. And then it was harder to get, like, ex as a big company like AWS and uh, even our, our our team, it was still hard with an open source project to be able to get external contributors. 
Like, how do you kind of put out towards the the world that, hey, this is an open source library. How do you get people coming in? How do they know that they can change things? How do they get the testing? Especially, you can't, it's really hard to do like end-to-end testing as a contributor. Um, so like unit testing obviously would work much better. So there's some, there some things like that we could have done better. But at the end of the day, we... Uh, compared to our older library, this one was getting like double the amount of weekly downloads and NPM, and it, it's been continuing to grow. So that's a little bit about kind of the journey that I've been taking the last year and a half. So just for a little more detail, so this library is, <clears throat> I think we mentioned this, but I'll just clarify. It's designed for use with AWS, right? It's not something you use to log into some external system. It's used with basically Cognito, your authentication platform uh, and accessing AWS resources. Yeah, so it it's like a it's a component library, but to use it, it's really geared towards Cognito, and you can use it with our other AWS tools. So there's a whole bunch of different AWS Amplify tools, like the UI component library, but there's also a JavaScript library that works on any platform. And that one, and then there's a CLI, and there's a th- thing called Studio. So with Studio or CLI, you can provision your whole backend, including this Cognito authentication user pool. And then you can use the UI component library to easily log into those systems. Yes, I know. Authentication is such a, <laughs> a nightmare, I think, for anybody. Yeah. And having something like that that you can drop in and works for you is a very big time saver for sure. Yeah, so that's that's one of the talks I'm working on. Hopefully, it'll be out. Uh, hopefully, I'll get get a couple talks those that, that talk in. There's a bunch of Vue conferences coming up soon, so I'm looking forward to to them. Vue Comp is coming up. Uh, Vue J Vue Live London is coming coming up. Um, I think there's a couple more too. And where's Vue Comp this year? I forgot. It's in uh, New Orleans. That's right. New somewhere down south. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. I've been to every not, no, that's not true. I, I, my first view comp I've been to is in, was 2020, mm-hmm. right before the pandemic hit, which was weird because it was in March, right before the pandemic. And I noticed like a bunch of people were like leaving early from the conference. I think people were kind of getting nervous already at that point because that's when the lockdowns and shutdowns started wow. happening. But they didn't cancel. To, to abuse credit, they, they didn't cancel it, I guess, because it still right. wasn't at that level at that point. Right. And then I did the online, uh, I did, I think it got canceled in 2020. Maybe it was virtual in 2021 and virtual in 2022. And now it's back to being in person this mm-hmm. year, which is great. And I, if I remember correctly, someone tweet me at Eric CH if I'm wrong, but I think the first ViewConf was also in New Orleans. So this is kind of like going back to the roots of the first uh, ViewConf. Yeah, I was supposed to go to 20, see, 2019 in Orlando. Mm. It was in Florida. And I was all set to go. And I was signed up for a uh, uh, one of Evan Yu's workshops. Wow. Like core view stuff. And my company was sending me. Well, <laughs> I ended up leaving the company about a month or two before the conference. So I didn't get to go. It's like, dang, I should have uh. waited a couple months and then left. <laughs> you know. uh, but I want to go to the View Conf in Amsterdam. That's the one that that I guess is even bigger than the one in the U.S. I've been told. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's um, it already happened in February of this year, so I guess for next year. Right. Yes. But yeah, it's it's a big three day conference like the one in the U.S. Is it always in Amsterdam? Is it always Vue JS as compared to like uh, Vue Europe that rotates locations? Um, I think it is. I'm not entirely sure, actually. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to get to it. There's so many people I know from the view community from doing uh, the podcasts and, and other things that I've never met in person. So yeah, I, I definitely need to get out at some point and press the flesh, so to speak, and meet people in person. Yeah. <laughs> I was all set to go this next year, I think. And then as with many places, budget cuts hit and they're like, yeah, sorry, you're not going. <laughs> at least we're not going to pay for you to go. Let's put it that way. Yeah. there. That has been everywhere. Then it's been the same thing. I was just look while you were talking. I was just looking up the different view conferences all over the world. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunately 
that I, I've seen the same thing. A lot of companies are cutting back on, on travel. So luckily as a DA, I, I'm not as affected, but mm-hmm. I am affected some. That's part of your job, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As long as I'm uh, like participating, talking, being a part of it, that's fine. Um, if I wasn't like being a part of it, then I wouldn't go. Right. Cool. Alrighty. So let's move on to a couple of topics that Eric has covered in some of his videos and has to do with some uh, items that are in the current 3.3 release that has yet to actually be released still in beta three as of two days ago, as of this recording. Uh, Some changes to define model and define props. Yeah. So I've been on a quest recently, especially with all the Vue 3.3 stuff dropping recently to like figure out what's in it and try it out. And uh, I, I was telling Steve before we started this podcast that probably should have someone in the quorum team or Evan you himself to help explain some of these things, but I will try to do my best. But from what I've been playing around with it, I've been excited about these features. So uh, one of them is Vue uh, props. Well, let's start with, yeah, let's view props. And you can kind of play around with some of these things right now. Um, well, let me rephrase this. So if you go to like the GitHub and look at view, the view core, there's some betas out right now. And there was alphas before that that have some of these features in it. If you if you use the, the view playground, the view single file component playground, you can kind of play around with them today. Yeah. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if you're using Vue CLI or excuse me, Beat or create the create uh, view tools out there if you can kind of play around with these today. And also since they're in beta and alpha, it's probably not production ready. Some things might change, but I think they're almost locked in. But what I've been doing to try to, to, try to test it out in my channel is I've been using... Uh, view macros. So some of these things are actually just uh, macros changes. So if you view macros is a library that that has a bunch of like official and experimental type macros that you can add into your view applications. And you can kind of uh, macro is one of those ones. Like if you're in your script setup, uh, you just add in. There's some built in ones like uh, uh, emits, define emits and define props and a few others. Um, and, and you, this view macros kind of adds these into your application today that might not be in the, uh, view core yet. So one of one, one of which, uh, is in going to be in view 3.3 and this is define props and it allows you to like destructure props, which is a really nice thing can you, you can do. So if you've ever used, uh, props today. You have to be really careful about destructuring because you can lose reactivity. But with this new type of define props, you don't have to worry about that. There's also uh, another change they added is allow you when you're creating your application, you're adding types to your to your props that now you can import them in from an external file. So before, if you try that, it gives you like an error, but now you can import in your type and then just directly inside your defined props, inside your uh, angle brackets, you can put them in, which is really cool. And then uh, another thing I've been playing around with is define models. And it's hard to describe, but when you're, if you ever add like a V model to a component, you can pass in values from a parent component into a, a child component that you had the V model on and it's two-way data bound. So if the child component changes it, it updates in the parent and vice versa. And typically when you pass values in as props into components in view, they're read-only. So if you try to change that prop value, it, it ends up uh, giving you an error message that this prop is read-only and this is not the proper way to do things. So uh, today, even before you can use V model, but you had to do this kind of weird syntax where you had to like uh, you had this update colon model, and you had to emit the update back, and mm-hmm. and it was a little more complicated. So this V model or this new define model 
uh, allows you, it's called define model, it's a macro, uh, allows you to like just make the change in the child component and as if it's just like a normal vari uh, variable and you can make the change without having to do this kind of emit dance. So it's a little bit less boilerplate and it made a lot more sense to me. Yeah, that's called component V model um, in the docs. I'll put yeah, it in V model. And I'm actually using that in, in my app that I've been working on. It took me a little while to figure it out and get everything named properly. But once I got it working, it's great because like in my particular use case uh, with inertia, the way it works is in your controller, you say, okay, uh, render this page. Here's the page render and here's the props to pass to it. But if in your, and these are components that are in the pages directory, but if you have an included component, um, within your your main component that's being rendered and you want to change data in there you have to pass it back to the parent in order to communicate with the with the controller if that makes sense so i so in my particular case i've got like a you know it's a page component and then i have an embedded table component with some sorting and filtering uh and searching capabilities in it so uh i had to wire it using this in such a way that when you typed in the field in the child, it admitted to the parent and then communicated with the controller and, and did its thing. So once you, it's a little confusing at first, uh, the current method where you have to name things just right and certain things have to be matched up. But once you figure it out, then it makes sense. So it sounds like uh, with your description, then this will become a little cleaner and easier to use. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, and you can use it multiple, um, you can use this to find mo models and, and have it multiple different values you're passing in and have it that kind of two-way data binded way. I think most people use vModel just like on an input. It's kind of like the common use cases where... Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, where you're just trying to take a value from an input and have it available in your script. Mm -hmm. uh, but this one, this, it gets a little bit more complicated when you're passing values from like a parent to child component. And vModel... I know somebody's li listening right now and like, isn't that just syntactic sugar for yes, finding the value and then using a V on? Yes, you're right. So for those who don't know yet, it, you can do this without vModel itself. You can bind values to inputs and then uh, have look for input triggers and then set the value itself. And you can do the same thing with a component. But this this makes it a lot easier. And then define models will make it even easier so you don't have to handle, um, you don't have to handle the emits as, as the same way you had to before. And you can, it's almost like you're adding it like a ref because you can do dot value in your child component. So these are all kind of neat new things that are coming out in Vue 3.3. One I didn't have time to play around with, which I really want to play around with, is generics. There is some limitations in TypeScript with props and if you're using generics which I haven't like deep dived into, but Vue 3.3 is supposed to add that functionality too. And I think that's where a lot of people who have, who are really TypeScript heavy, kind of more advanced applications are looking forward to as TypeScript generics. Right. Yeah, I, I like I was telling you beforehand, I'm, I'm going to have to dip my toes in the TypeScript pool here soon. I know it. I'm getting <laughs> sucked into the vortex. I know it. Although side note, and this is interesting, and I can't remember if you and I talked about this or if I did this, on uh, JavaScript Jabber, have you seen that Svelte, Rich Harris talked about this, is getting rid of TypeScript. And yeah. so, yeah, it was, I can find the link somewhere. I saw it on Hacker News. And I was talking with some, somebody in a, in a Discord channel about this. And the proper context isn't that you can't use TypeScript in, in Svelte. It's just that they're not going to use it in the core but it will still support it if when you're writing your Svelte components, you still want to use TypeScript. So it's perfectly fine. But uh, he talks a little bit about it and, uh, you know, why they did it and existing tools are enough without the overhead of TypeScript. Nice. So that, that was interesting. Yeah, I wonder I wonder what the rationale is not using it in core. I think it really helps with just, like, catching bugs. I mean, now you have types. So now it's like you have a type language and you can catch things easier. I remember back in the day, I don't know, years ago, I was working on an app and we used TypeScript on it. And TypeScript wasn't as popular as it was today. But somewhere was like, we could just use TypeScript and we could we don't have to do testing at all because this is like basic, like a very, very uh, thin layer of protection in our app. But maybe this is all we need to do. 
So we, so I think in this app we created, we didn't have any tests, but we did have TypeScript. So we, we had something to catch obvious issues oh, once see. we typed everything. Uh-huh. Wait, where was it? Oh, here it is. Okay. Yeah, I found the article. Um, so, all right. Last topic. Oh, before I forget, I'm jumping all yep. over the place here. We were talking about macros. What is a macro? To me, you know, when I think of macros, this goes way back to uh, days gone by before I, when I was working in something like Excel, a spreadsheet. And so a macro was a way to automate running a multi-step process. So you could, you know, I'm going to open this tab and click here in this cell and type this in and, and run these calculations, you know, whatever it was, and it would record it. And then you could assign it to a button in your bar and say, you know, run this macro and it would do all that for you. So is that similar to what macros are here that you're talking about in view or is they completely different? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm looking at the definition as you were talking, but they, in the view guide, it talks about macros are globally available and you don't need to be import them. So that's one of the ideas is that you don't have to import macros into your into your component. And then they have like bits of kind of maybe similar to what you're talking about, like some functionality inside them. So the macros that are already built into view, I believe are, there's three of them. Um, I have to look them up. I think define props, define emits are two of them. Um, define expose. So hmm. those are three macros that mm -hmm. are built into view. Mm -hmm. And so if you're using a composition API using script setup, then you would do like const prop equals define props. Right. And then you can put in like an array of, or an object with key values of every single prop, mm -hmm. but you don't have to go import in define props. Right. As compared to a composable, which is something that you write, but you would have to import it in the places where you specifically want to use it. Yes. Yeah. So if you had, uh, if you add some functionality and you wanted to kind of use it in multiple places, then you can put it in its own file, um, usually with the use at the beginning of it, like right. use handler or use mouse or, and then you would import that into your app and then you would have that functionality. So some people don't like these because like it's kind of, it kind of looks like magic. <laughs> um, <laughs> Voodoo. Yeah. Um, and they're called compiler macros. Right. Um, and then they, they do not need to be imported and they're compiled away when script setup is processed too. Oh, interesting. Okay. Cause I, you know, anytime you, you have something that's, uh, globally available, uh, you know, the concern obviously is, are you importing it and having it in there in places where it's not being used? Is it causing, you know, overhead problems because it's everywhere? That's but, true. Uh, yeah, I think it's, since it's compiled away, like it's, it's not going to have the, those issues. It's part of the compiler, like looks for that name. I've, I have noticed like in VS Code, you definitely need to make sure you have Volar installed and you have to make sure at least Volar. Um, otherwise, you'll get a bunch of, if you open a view.view .view file, it won't recognize it. It'll think that these macros need to be imported in. Like I have had issues in the past where VS Code has something wrong with it. And all of a sudden it keeps telling me like, doesn't recognize define props, doesn't recognize this. So you have to be careful with that. But as long as you have like the right extensions installed and latest version of VS Code or whatever web storm or whatever IDE you use, then it should be fine. I, I, I like them. Um, there was a whole talk about reactivity transform was going to add even more to find these compiler macros. And there was a lot of talk out there about like people really did not like them. It was adding like way too much magic. It was allow you to like unwrap refs using dollar signs. And it wasn't really obvious of what the dollar sign meant. And people dislike that. And that's actually not going to be in view 3.3. Evan, you've already talked about how he does not want it on there. Mm -hmm. I know I, I, I should say we, if, uh, Keep me honest, Steve, if, if I'm going into like an advanced topic or a topic that needs to be explained more, well, we can uh, break that down further. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm all about the definitions. For yeah. sure. I remember one time I listened, always brings me back. I listened to a, a podcast uh, and they were talking about, um, uh, oh gosh, what was it? Reactivity. Um, 
the ob- observables type of mm. thing. And there was a particular yeah. observable library. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember what it was. RxJS? Yeah, I think, yes, it was RxJS. And it was John Papa on his on his his episode. And so they dived in and started talking about RxJS and all this stuff. And I got to the end, I said, what's observables and what is Rx supposed to do? <laughs> and all this, I didn't get it. I tweeted him and said, hey, John, next time you got to describe this. Oh, yeah, okay, good point. So yeah, I always like to make sure that the we define the things that we're talking about so people don't confuse. Yeah, there's a lot of there is some viewisms out there that like I think even when I'm working out my work and I talk to React developers or Angular developers, they're like, What? What you're emitting data? Like, don't you just pass everything down as functions or like, well, no, we have this paradigm that we use and and we have these reps. What you don't have like a use state? <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely um worth explaining some of these topics, especially for people who may not be uh, knowledgeable at them. Yeah, got to be aware of the geek speak and the acronym speak. (laughs) So speaking of geek speak and acronym speak, let's talk ref versus reactive. Um, These are, for those who may not be familiar with them, they are uh, ways to define uh, what is reactive data, you know, in view three with the composition API, where before, you know, in view two, you would define uh, in your script, you would define your data function. It's actually a function, not an object. And that would return whatever pieces of data you wanted to define in your in component that you wanted to be reactive, whether it was a string, an object, an array, a number, whatever. And so now we wrap them with ref and reactive to use JS proxies. And that's about all I know from them except how to <laughs> use them. So uh let's talk rep versus reactive they are there are differences between the two and i know i've seen numerous blog posts written about them just to explain them so with that we'll let eric explain more <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't have no a, pressure so i've i've been researching ref versus reactive i've been using them but it's kind of arbitrary like when i use one versus the other i used to always use refs and then i started been getting more reactives and i've been thinking about like when should i use when and, and i'm working on a conference like talk on this or or blog post, maybe in a video at some point. And I've been researching, and there's definitely a lot of different opinions on it, but I guess to define some terms, like anytime you do add in like reactive reactive data, so like let's say something that needs to change in the template and, and it needs to be kind of updated. If, as you're updating the script, it needs to be updated in the template, then you make something reactive. And ref usually, uh, it, it takes in as a, like a primitive, or an object, so you have like a string or boolean in there. Uh, while a reactive object, a reactive is the keyword, uh, and then that would be more for uh, just objects. So, uh, and ref has a couple different similarity uh, differences too. With refs, you use dot value everywhere. So if you define something, you can do something dot value, and you can get 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 to it. While reactive. Uh, you don't need to. You can just reference it directly. Uh, ref, you can also kind of do a complete reassignment with dot value equal something. Well, um, reactive is not quite quite the same. Or you don't you don't have a, kind of that type of reassignment there. Uh, as for using one versus the other, I've gone in this habit of using refs quite more often than reactive because since it can support objects. Um, it seems to be a little bit easier for me. One pattern that I've been using is I'll put in a lot of my logic into a composable. And I kind of stole this from ViewUse and other popular composable libraries is I'll put all my reactive variables in there and then I'll export them out as an object with each ref as a different um, value inside there. So then you can destructure the values out uh, as I import it in because I'm just importing, I'll import them in and then destructure the object with each ref and it'll keep its reactivity. So uh, that's one type technique. Also, if you use reactive by itself and then you try to destructure, you lose reactivity. So that's like a reason that you got to be kind of careful with that too. Uh, so that that's my opinion. I'm still kind of doing some more research and seeing what other people uh, think there was something called, we kind of touched on it before, was the reactivity transform, where it was like a compiler macro that allowed you to like un, like not be, you could basically use a dollar sign 
and not have to use uh, dot value everywhere when you're using refs. But I think that's kind of gone out of favor and they're not going to, you could still use it if you use like a third party library, like that view macros library. But otherwise, I think we're, we're not going to see that. And then if you look at the, and uh, if you even look at the implementation of, of some of these things, like for uh, ref, let me see here. Yeah, if you look at the implementation for ref in the view three, it actually uses uh, reactive. Uh, too reactive. Right. That's right. I remember that. Which is, at that. Which is kind of interesting. Uh, so it, it feels like Ref, I think, would be, um, depending on your situation, I, I've been using just Ref more often. Do you have an opinion on this? I have to go back and look at my code. I know I've I've wrestled with this a few times. You know, looking at the, the view docs on uh, a reactivity basic or fundamentals, excuse me. You know, the, the one difference is that um, reactive can only work for object type, right? Objects, arrays, collections, right. whereas ref can handle scalar types. So, you know, a string, you know, some sort of non-object value, single value. Um, so I remember somewhere, and I think we were talking about this, Eric, there was one can handle mutating deeper object items uh, and one doesn't. And I don't remember which is which. Um, don't shoot me if I'm wrong. Uh, somebody can fact check me on this if they want. But I remember that's one thing I read about. And I think my tendency is to use ref. Um, like you said, just because it uh, it handles more use cases in terms of the data types. And there, I haven't really seen any issues where you'd want to use ref versus react, uh, reactive versus ref, shall we say. Uh, the one thing that is trickier in accessing the data, you know, depending on whether you're doing it within your template versus another function or something other else, something else in your script, is how to access the actual values. You know, sometimes you have to use values, sometimes you don't. And then I like to, uh, you know, look at things in the in the debugger, in the dev tools, in the browser. And now when, when you spit out, you know, something it's wrapped in a proxy. And so you got to drill down to figure what your data is and haven't quite gotten down how to spit that out to the console in a little cleaner way. But I think you have to stringify it or do something. But yeah, that's the one, the only downsides I've seen to that. It's just, it's definitely a different paradigm from view two. View two was a lot simpler in how it handled that, uh, making reactive data. So this, uh, and I'm, just from a coding standpoint, it seems that the benefits are more behind the scenes <laughs> than they are in how you're actually writing your components. If anything, it's made it harder. Well, I'm, I'm glad it just works. Like, I don't, I don't, I've been doing a lot of React lately and having to worry about uh, use effects and having, using use state and making sure that I'm not re-rendering too many times and making sure I have my dependency array correct and I'm just glad I'm like using view and I'm like, I just put this ref here, it works and and I'm happy with it. I do I did ran into one scenario where I was using a pretty complicated nested object and I was using ref and I couldn't get I just didn't love the way I was like reassigning the values. Mm -hmm. But for the most part I've had very little issues at all just using ref everywhere in my code base. But yeah, it's 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 great, and I think there's a whole discussion about like ref. Uh, I think Evan, you even had a Twitter post about this, how signals has become like this word signals and uh, has become this real popular idea. Maybe a couple months ago, I haven't heard too much about people talking about it, but where like React is getting signals, and the signals is kind of native to you know this this other platform, and it's a better way of handling like reactive state and it has this kind of almost observability pattern to it it's almost like an observable and it's kind of been around for a long time in other languages or frameworks and libraries but evan you was like well this basically ref is essentially the same thing as a signal like we already have this built into view so it's not and you can even recreate exactly how it's used in this other uh this other framework by you know doing it this way, so it's like it's really nice that we already have this built in, and we don't have to worry about worry about 
state um, like the way like React does. Yeah, you actually have a video up here with Evan I'm looking at. Uh, I try to create signals in view with Evan Yu's help. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did I did kind of deep dive into to signals and took some inspiration from a from what he posted online. And I created something called Create Signal, use the shallow ref mm. uh, to do it, which is an analogous to to uh, to what signals are in these other languages. And then I did it again using Solid. So I showed like how Solid uses Create Signal and how it's really similar to Views Ref. So yeah, if anybody's interested in that, yeah, check out my channel program with Eric or Eric.video. All right, so we're getting low on time, so. First, we'll thank Eric for sharing his wisdom with us yet again and experience and his videos. Uh, like he said, program with Eric, E-R-I-K, by the way, uh, on YouTube or Eric.video where you can find all of his goods. And I'll drop some uh, links to the uh, those videos in the show notes for this particular episode. Sounds good. All right, so let's move on to picks. Picks are part of the show where we got to talk about whatever we want within reason, of course. Um, not violating any FCC rules or anything. But uh, I got a couple picks today before I get to uh, what is widely considered the high point of any episode of mine, which is the dad jokes of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, uh, did some flying this last week and went to uh, Chicago. And on the way, uh, I watched a uh, video and, um, uh, excuse me, a movie and for the movies. And the one I watched was 1917, uh, which is really uh, a cool, uh, cool movie. It's, it's, it takes place during World War I. Uh, and the premise is that it's, uh, it talks about um, it's, uh, communications where uh, one unit had to be, uh, it's the British Army, I believe, had to be, let it know that they shouldn't do an attack because it was a trap by the Germans and they didn't want everybody to get slaughtered. And so they sent two guys, I think it's about a day's journey to get to this unit. But what was cool about the movie is that the way they filmed it and that instead of, you know, it's a typical movie where you jump around in different camera angles and you're changing who's being viewed, the camera follows these two guys, or at least two for as long as both are in the movie, spoiler alert, um, are... Uh, it just follows them all the time. It never takes your eyes off both the, the the characters, the main character. It was really unique at the time. And if I remember right, it won a number of awards. Um, Wait, I, I, what happens if they left? Did they ever like leave each other? Uh, well, it's been a few years, so I guess I can... can uh, no, don't spoil it. But Oh, I'll say both <laughs> of them didn't make it to the end. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I know, um, but if you're, if you're like, if, if the camera's on both of them at the same time, don't they ever, like, one has to go to the bathroom and the other one's, like, sitting on the... Oh, come on. This is the movies. They don't talk about that kind of <laughs> stuff. You got to remember, in the movies, people don't get cold or hot. They don't, you know, they don't go to the bathroom. Anyway. so I'll have to check it out. I've heard good things. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good movie. But the problem is, like most, <laughs> like most movies that I watch on the plane, a lot of times I'll start too late. And so the plane will land before I'm done. <laughs> and so then when I go to find it, I can't, I got to pay for it and rent for it and I'm too cheap. Like I've never seen the end of the Lincoln lawyer, you know, with Matthew <laughs> McConaughey, cause I saw it on a plane that I can't find it anywhere like Netflix or Amazon or anything. So, uh, I might have to just quit being cheap and spring to, to pay for this one just so I can watch it. Um, and then on a geekier note, it's an interesting, uh, article on hacker news today about, um, Oh my gosh, I just didn't lose it. I think I killed it. It's about import maps being available in all browsers now, mm-hmm. uh, which is more of a, you know, when you're importing modules like ES6 type of uh, functionality in Beat versus, you know, your front end code. Uh, but it was, uh, seemed to be sort of a big deal. And the guy did a pretty good description of what they are and, and how you use them. Here we go. JavaScript import maps are now supported across browser on web.dev by Thomas Steiner. So I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. And then for the dad jokes of the week, uh, I got to get my uh, Wait, do I get here. Do I get to go with uh, my own yeah. picker? Oh, yeah. Oh, we wouldn't dream of leaving. Yeah, but we saved the best for last. So that's why... Uh, <laughs> no, please. I'd like to hear the dad joke then. So, uh, oh, for sure. We wouldn't dream of, of not letting the guests have their, their jokes. So um, 
<clears throat> I was in the library not too long ago, and and I asked the librarian uh, if they had any books on different noise levels, and she said, "Sure. What volume would you like?" Right. Uh, simple question: What is a pirate? You know, there's pirate jokes are everywhere, uh, but what's a pirate's least favorite letter? And not a letter in the alphabet, a letter that they get in the mail. The letter is, Dear Sir, we hereby summon you to court for a hearing related to the illegal downloading and proliferation of the following copyrighted media. Ah. <laughs> that kind of pirate, right? And then um, I was working on a crossword puzzle the other day. And I was having trouble once. So I asked my wife to say, hey, can you help me? Uh, the clue for this one item is overworked postman. And she said, sure. How many letters? I said, I'm guessing too many. <laughs> right? It's pretty good. Yes. So those are the dad jokes of the week. Uh, all right, Eric, your turn. Picks. What do you got for yes, us? Yes, I have one. Uh, I've been, have you seen, I think I'll ask you, Steve, have you seen Blue Sky? Uh, let me look at my window. No, it's cloudy oh, right now. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, blue. I have now that I think I have been seeing that all the rage about that. I think I saw you had to have a an invite or something like that, sort of Google style ways of doing it. And I've applied for one, but I haven't been given one. And it sounds like it's a social media, some sort of thing. Yeah, what is it? Yeah, so it's so they Twitter, love it or hate it. You know, it's pretty much the de facto community social probably the biggest one of the biggest social media communities for developers out there and definitely not perfect has has its uh pros and cons but the recently you know mastodon was another kind of twitter kind of clone that came out open source that came out a few months ago especially when elon took over twitter a lot of people decided to to check that out but jack dorsey the creator uh one of the co-founders of Twitter actually was not the first, actually did not create Twitter. Um, he was a co-founder of it. He actually came on later, mm -hmm. but everybody basically has co-founder status, um, created uh, Blue Sky Social, which is like a, they call it a decentralized social network protocol. Um, and it's, it's spun out out by Twitter Inc. in 2019. It's hired its first employees in 2021. And it's essentially a very, very much clone almost of Twitter. It's in private beta now. So everybody who wants to get into, into it, everybody's getting FOMO. Everybody's getting the fear of missing out on it because it's they're only handing out a certain amount of invites a week. And only only power users who are using the soft um, using blue sky a lot and and i guess they're not called tweets i forgot to call skeets or something i think they have a different name hmm. uh and it's all private uh are getting invites and they're sending those out so everybody on twitter especially with with all the drama that's happened on there in the last six months have wanted to get into blue sky and i've luckily uh i have gotten one and i tried i've been trying out for the last week and it's it's pretty neat it's i haven't seen too many differences between Twitter and Blue Sky so far. One kind of, I guess, unique thing is your Twitter profile. You know, you my, mine's E-R-I-K-C-H, Eric C-H. But you can have it be your domain name. So if you if your domain is like, I don't know, uh, Eric dot, like program with Eric dot com, I can have my my name on Blue Sky be program with Eric dot com. So some people have, have started doing that. A lot of big Tech guy, tech people in our industry have already on there. Uh, I've seen a lot of really amazing developers on there, so it has a very techy feel to it, techy vibe right now, um, and that's that's uh, pretty interesting too. So I, I'm a kind of a wait and see attitude. I'm going to use it at the same time, but I'm not giving up on Twitter. I, I don't, I'm not sure if it'll what'll happen. Uh, I think they're going to continue like sending out invites, and hopefully, eventually, it'll be like public. But right now, it's it's that. And, and right now it's only on uh, your phone. I think you can get the desktop app. I think there's a link to it, but it's not it's not quite ready yet. So it's not like a web app, like you can go to twitter.com. No, I think everybody is using it on their mobile phones right now. Hmm, okay. 
At so least speaking of invites, do you have one you can pass my way? Uh, <laughs> I have not been granted any. So like, oh, okay. it, when you log into Blue Sky and you create your account for the first time on your profile page, it'll tell you have how many invites you have. Mm-hmm. And everybody starts with zero. And then mm-hmm. I, I hear, I think this is the way it works. I think the more you use the service, they'll, um, they'll give you more invites. I've only put out a few I don't, I don't, tweets um, <laughs> on Blue Sky. I'm just going to call them tweets. Mm-hmm. So I haven't gotten that far. One thing I, I don't love about jumping into another social, into social media or another, these uh, services is now I have to like start over again. Yes. <laughs> to like, now I have to like, I'm back to zero followers and I have to kind of work on it, which is kind of bad. But I do like how like geeky the community is. It's very developer friendly, developer focused right now. It's starting to branch out. Like they're starting to get like some celebrities and like AOC joined last week. And and uh, and so it, it'll be interesting. We'll see how it goes. If people will start using it or if it'll catch on some momentum. Yeah, we'll see. Is it now, is it centralized but decentralized like the whole thing with mastodon right is you could start your own servers and it's sort of you know different groups as compared to one big giant central network sort of like twitter is uh, i think you mentioned it was it was decentralized how does that uh how does that work with blue sky or what makes it unique other than just being a different app i don't know how the decentralization works i know it has like an api and has like this social protocol i'm wondering if the architecture is decentralized somehow I don't think it's to the point like I don't like Mastodon. You can literally like create your own Mastodon server mm-hmm. and then it would connect to other Mastodon servers. I think this is pretty it's private to Blue Sky, but maybe their architecture is decentralized. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's cheaper to run. I, I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I've been been curious to check it out. I applied for an invite. So who knows? If I'll ever get one, uh, if anybody out there listening and wants to send one my way, Wonder95 at Twitter, I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, happy to uh, happy to take one just to check it out for sure. All righty. So with that, we will wrap it up. We've been talking for a while, as always happens. Mm-hmm. It's pretty rare that I start talking and run too short. That's for sure. Yep. <laughs> so with that, we will say goodbye. Thank you to Eric for coming on and enlightening us and uh, good times. So yep. we, we will talk to you all next time on Views on View.